Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the time zone spanning podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, pretending I don't care about the Oscar nominations while reading endlessly about the Oscar nominations in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, trying but failing at January <laughs> down here in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> We focus on overlooked sci-fi, horror and fantasy films because our idea of a fun road trip involves trekking through the desert in a snowplough while being attacked by a variety of mutants. Mm. Hello, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like fun. Hello, Conrad. How are you? (laughs) I'm not too bad. How about you? Yeah, yeah. So still striving to achieve an uh, unachievable goal of January. Doing the music, yeah. the musical challenge of uh, a live jam, live musical jam since every day. I've got to day 11 and it's currently uh, the 28th of January. So uh, <laughs> I, I've got Monday and Tuesday left. Uh, so, you know, by the time this episode comes out, maybe you would have achieved 20 <laughs> jams in two days, but we'll see. 10 a day? <laughs> You've got that in you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you are curious, though, I am the Wistful Snail on Instagram and TikTok. But you have been perusing the Oscar nominations. Actually, I was quite pleased that Everything Everywhere All at Once came out with the largest I'm very hopeful. number of nominations. Yeah. Uh, I think it deserves everything it gets. It's a wonderful film. Mm, mm. I, I really want to see that movie Tar as well. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, it didn't screen here. So um, I guess it'll just be streaming that I get to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I vowed to sort of swear off the Oscars after the appalling travesty that happened last year and their complete failure to deal with it properly. I thought, well, it's always been irrelevant and silly and awarded the wrong movies. But yeah, last the, year it the was slap just about. Yeah, they just didn't deal with it. You can't let somebody assault someone on stage and then give them no, an award. Good. It's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> Appalling lack of spine. But um, so I thought not only are they craven and irrelevant, they're also irresponsible. But uh, I still couldn't help but look and see who was nominated and be quite pleased by who some of them were. So yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I won't watch it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like the Oscars for me, it's always very hit and miss. Uh, who wins and who doesn't? Like it's it's never anyone I want. No, I did get to see the whale recently. Oh yes, how was that? It's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I came out of it not sure whether it was you know a deeply poignant story about the human condition or just the study of very very self centered and self destructive people mm, right and the film's message seemed to be well you can't help them so just watch them self destruct yeah i don't right. know 
<laughs> I mean, I love a tragedy, so, you know. Oh, well, you'll like it then, yeah. It's a definite <laughs> for hanky. And I kept spotting moments that I thought, yeah, that'll be the Oscar clip because there'll be these sort of like grand speeches with tears coming down their face. Oh, yeah, and yeah, think, yeah, 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 yeah. there's the Oscar clip. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. Well, uh, hopefully is. no tears today in our mailbag, but uh, what's in store <laughs> from our listeners? Well, you did break someone's heart as it happens. Eddie Coulter got in touch to say that it hurt my heart on Dan's dislike for Crimson Peak. But oh. I can understand. <laughs> Plus, I'm sure it didn't help that the marketing was done completely wrong for it. But I love gothic romances mm, yeah i i could see where it was going and i i did i don't know it's it's just the whole scenario just seemed really ridiculous but the movie itself like visually just stunning stunning movie mm. um and and the sort of depiction of the ghost really interesting but yeah i don't know it, it kind of ended up not even really being about ghosts at all and it was about this, mm-hmm. this weird brother-sister thing going on. And I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, I don't even remember it. I watched it and I thought, this is mediocre. And I can't remember what happened in it. And I've never had the desire to watch it again. Whereas yeah. Pan's Labyrinth and the Devil's Backbone and Hellboy, I, I watch quite regularly. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I love all the stuff usually. even Even the other stuff, like. Troll Hunter and um, all the other things that he's involved with. Um, but yeah, mm. I don't know. Crimson Peak, not so much for me. No. And of course, we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Surge. Hello, Surge. And he said, Kronos is a hell of a directorial debut, charmingly rough around the edges, but with plenty of the dark whimsicality that would go on to define Del Toro's career. But even as a standalone modern-day vampire film, it's delightfully creative and gross. Yeah, yeah. It's everything I ever wanted in a, in a movie by Guillermo del Toro. It's great. <laughs> Yes, and uh, he notes that it's rough around the edges, which I think was what I was trying to point out. Yeah, Yeah. Always good to hear from you, everyone. Please do keep in touch. Yeah, and give us an email if you want to at movie.oubliet at gmail.com. So, Conrad, what is in the Oubliet today to fetch? I don't know. I'll just amble on over there to find out. Okay. Ah, I'm in some sort of desert canyon. Ooh, who are those creepy kids? What's that sound? Oh my god, they're throwing Molotov cocktails at me. Quick, get the movie. Ah, oh, I think it's in this box. Let me try repair procedure number one. What's that? Yeah, just a sharp kick. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, come back, Conrad. You're nothing but a baby. Honestly, teenagers these days. So what do you have today? So today I have with me Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. I feel like it has to be said in that sort of voice. Yeah, yeah, like Conquest of Space, you know. <laughs> yeah, really... Conquest of Space. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a 1983 American-Canadian space western which stars Peter Strauss, Molly Ringwald, Ernie Hudson, Andrea Marcovici, and Michael Ironside. Spoilers, he's the villain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
It's directed by Lamont Johnson, based on a story by Stuart Harding and Jean Lafleur, and written by David Preston, Edith Ray, Daniel Goldberg, and Len Blum. So, <laughs> six writers? It's <laughs> a lot, yeah. It's a lot, yes. But just wait and see the story that they came up with. Oh, yes. In a galaxy far, far away roguish bounty hunter Wolf goes on a mission to rescue what appears to be three backup dancers from a Duran Duran music video whose escape pod crash-landed on the formerly plague-ridden desert planet Terra 11 after their luxury Starliner exploded. Learning that the three unnamed ladies have been abducted by the planet's mutated dictator Overdog, Wolf reluctantly teams up with a plucky local scavenger, Nicky, and a former military comrade, Washington. Together, they travel across the wastelands into the Forbidden Zone, fending off biker gangs, bubble-wrapped bat people, Amazonian semi-aquatic women, and mutant children with (laughs) Molotov cocktails, until they reach Overdog's lair in Graveyard City. Will Wolf rescue the overstyled damsels in distress? Will Washington participate in any meaningful way? Will <laughs> Nikki survive Overdog's spiky obstacle course? And will it all come at you in stunning 80s 3D? Find out after the break. Oh, yes. <laughs> We're back to talk about Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Dan, had you seen this gem from 1983 before? Well, uh, this movie came out <laughs> the year I was born. So I would have been uh, zero uh, when, <laughs> when this was shown in cinemas. So I hadn't seen this movie. Uh, I heard of it a little bit, but I, I didn't know anything about this movie. This is kind of a genre of film that I'm not really that used to as well Mm -hmm. this kind of b-grade sci-fi i feel like battle beyond the stars was like the first of that type of genre that i'd ever seen yeah i've seen a lot of sci-fi from 70s 80s 90s that sort of thing but it's always been kind of like high sci-fi more artfully done and you know thought (laughs) out you know you've got like alien and you know 2001 space odyssey that sort of thing yeah but battle beyond stars and space hunter obviously lower budget (laughs) and kind of you know ripping off other successful (laughs) (laughs) current sci-fis at the time but for you, Connor, had you seen this movie before? See, I thought I had. Oh, really? <laughs> ah. I thought that this is a film that I saw in the 80s on VHS. No big surprise. It's a common story on this podcast. <laughs> Normally for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but as it turns out, I was thinking about the 1988 science fiction film Cherry 2000, ah. which features... Melanie Griffith, not Molly Ringwald. Right. They're sort of traipsing across deserts and robot women, but I just completely confused them, I think. Wow. Because I didn't recognise this at all. Right, right. (laughs) Unless I'd just forgotten it. I don't know. Interesting, (laughs) interesting. Wow, that's, yeah. Like, normally (laughs) you'd seen pretty much all the 80s that we cover yeah um but this movie like i do i mean there are other movies that came out around about the same time that have very similar cover posters like 
the Ice Pirates. Yes. You know, they're all very similar vein and all very B-grade and sort of action sci-fi adventure type movies. Yeah, because it's obviously treading on the heels of Star Wars and trying to get some of the Star Wars box office, but they're also trying to capitalise on Mad Max at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I saw that. Mainly Mad Max. It's Mad Max in space, uh, essentially. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's expensive doing all these spaceships and different planets and bases and things, so if you can just drive a bike around a desert, that's much easier. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you don't have to make it look science fiction either. Just make it look rusty and cobbled <laughs> together and kitbash, you know. Like yeah. <laughs> It can look like shit and I know. they can get away with it. Yeah. See, I was never a fan of this. I'd always used to call this the sort of rusty, corrugated iron sort of <laughs> sci-fi movie. I yeah. prefer my spaceships and production-designed alien world sci-fi Right, stuff. right, right. I like it. I, I do like the sort of steampunk aesthetic. Like, it is very steampunk in this movie. Everything seems to be just spouting smoke mm. <laughs> and, like, really noisy. But I really enjoy <laughs> that. Like, I, maybe it's the whole, yeah, steampunk, punky aesthetic of the 80s that seemed to be quite prevalent as well, as opposed to the sleek highly stylized 70s and 60s sci-fi which i was surprised battle beyond the stars took that approach yeah but it's like it's the 80s what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's very much a hallmark of roger corman isn't yeah it? that it's just a few years behind the curve yeah yeah i mean we're talking 80s here can we talk about the cast? Mm. I didn't know really anyone, apart from Molly Ringwald, obviously. I've seen her in Pretty in Pink and uh, The Breakfast Club. I've never seen 16 Candles. I know, it's blasphemous. Um, <laughs> but I didn't realise she's still acting, like, in quite popular shows. Like, she was in Riverdale. She was in the new Dharma show. I know. Which I haven't seen, but it's... That's amazing. I have. And I was stunned because the credit came up and it said Molly Ringwald. And I said, well, who the hell is she? And she's Dharma's mum. Wow. She's great in it. Yeah. She's really good, but unrecognisable. Mm, yeah. I mean, even seeing her in this, uh, it was quite different because she's very petulant and obstinate and just like <laughs> doesn't do what she's told but kind of annoying and you know she's only like 14 15 in this movie as well yeah all the other cast i mean i know of michael ironside's reputation as a villain he was katana in highlander 2 the quickening that we covered <laughs> oh, yeah in our yeah. video essay but he's also been in you know turbo kid that we've covered as the villain zeus yeah which was an obvious reference to this I think. right ah oh, right 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 yeah and i'm guessing he's just always the villain is that right yeah probably in paul verhoeven films is the one that people remember the most particularly total recall right. see you at the party richter right yeah. right 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 yeah, also we've got Ernie Hudson, mm. seen him in Leviathan. Obviously, he's he's from Ghostbusters as well. Yes. Um, but Peter Strauss, I am not aware of. Who's Peter Strauss? Probably better known for his forays on television, mm. particularly Rich Man, Poor Man in the 70s. Okay. But one thing that I like him for, he's the voice of Justin the Rat in The Secret of Nim. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie. I love that movie, so he gets serious kudos from me. These days he knocks about in Grey's Anatomy and things like that, oh, okay. Law and Order. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, it's a bunch so of TV. still a very much a working actor. Okay, yeah. all right. Uh, also the director, Lamont Johnson, I'm not 
hugely aware of either. So he is regarded, or was regarded, I should say, as sort of a workhorse. He cut his teeth on TV as well, probably in this genre, most famous for doing some very famous episodes of The Twilight Zone. Right. And of course, he was brought in to direct this movie two weeks into filming. Right. After the original story writer, Jean Lafleur, who was directing this as, I think, as a directorial debut, was fired. Right. So wow. I couldn't find any details on what was going wrong. Yeah, yeah, okay. But he was fired and they got in somebody who was just a sure, steady hand at the wheel, if not a particularly innovative director, oh, okay, maybe, yeah, at this yeah, point yeah. in his career. Okay. Uh, also produced by Ivan Reitman mm-hmm. of uh, Ghostbusters and all the other Arnie movies from... 80s and 90s, it seems. Yes. <laughs> Twins. Lots Twin of comedies. Cop. Junior. <laughs> Junior. What a movie that was. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I keep forgetting Emma Thompson's in that. I know. I know. It's like the love interest. It's like, wow. What is yeah, that? How did that happen? <laughs> Greenlit that movie. <laughs> <It's> bizarre. <laughs> so... Okay, the plot of this movie. I'm going to be comparing this to Battle Beyond the Stars a lot because, I don't know, it, they're very similar vein. You know, action adventure, sci-fi. You've got a character tasked with this thing to do. So in this movie, Wolf is tasked with saving these three very attractive models <laughs> that seem to crash land on this planet. Yeah. But I feel like the goal is very clear, whereas in Battle Beyond the Stars, you're like, what's this guy doing? Is he going to be the leader? But he's a terrible leader, and then he's finding all these like people to battle in this big war, but you don't really realize he's finding people. Like, I feel like that's very unclear, whereas this, it's, mm. it's very crystal clear. He has to save the girls, Yeah. and he has to go to the place to save the girls, and it's just, like, solid. We know what to expect to come. Yeah, that's very true. And he's just doing it for the money. Yeah. Because he's a down-on-his-luck kind of guy. He reminded me less of Han Solo, which is kind of what he's thought of, you know, as being modelled yeah, after. very much a Harrison Ford-type character. He is, yeah. His name is Wolf with two Fs. Yes, um, And it makes me wonder whether his first name is Lone, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the character names are very, I mean, the uh, characters you'd only see in sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, Overdog. I mean, <laughs> I, what? <laughs> what is this? Yeah. But he reminds me more of the characters in Firefly. Oh, okay, You know, he's got yeah. this military past. He's sort of down on his luck, kind of like Mal. Mm. And he's got Washington as like somebody that he served with. Yeah. And I guess the only arc for him is for him to soften over it and become slightly less mercenary and money oriented. And the way that they do that is by showing him, A, actually collaborating with Washington, even though the two of them are sort of rivals because they went different paths, mm. one on the side of the law, one as an outlaw, and also softening towards the Molly Ringwald character, Nikki, mm. who he is initially just using, and then he starts to empathise with her, and then eventually he takes her with him. I was a little bit concerned about where that relationship was going, Me because yeah. Molly Ringwald was 14, Peter Strauss was 36 when they made this yeah. movie. She's underage, there's a 20-year age difference <laughs> 
Mm-hmm, I thought, please, mm-hmm. God, don't let them kiss. Yeah. But they do not. It's very much a paternal relationship. He keeps saying things to her like, you're a baby, you should be in high school. Yeah. And then when they do hug, he rests his chin on the top of her head, which is very sort of fatherly, I think. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Phew, and <laughs> dodged a bullet yeah. there. <laughs> I know. It was actually really refreshing to have Mm. that sort of dynamic rather than, oh, no, it's just the love interest again. Mm. And, like, you know, that sort of, I think, pop culture detective uh, covered it, the the kidnapping for love, you know. Yeah. Where they just force them into a thing and, like, he slings her over his shoulder at one stage and, like, force cleans her in a water puddle. Like, it's... (laughs) It was like, oh, is this going in that direction where, like, she's going to fall in love with him just by being abducted, (laughs) you know? Um, But luckily, no. And I really did like Molly's character in this. Like, the fact that she was always questioning him and and, and sort of pushing his boundaries. Mm. Like, it was an actual interaction between two characters. Yeah, it was. And although she does end up being sort of damsel in distress that needs rescuing at the end, Mm. not really, because she ends up going through Overdog's gauntlet. Somebody had to in the finale. But she gets through it because that's actually her thing. She's Nikki the Twister. Mm. She can squirrel her way through tight spaces. That's Oh, yeah. So that pays off from the beginning when she introduces herself so she holds her own she just ends up being put in front of overdog and having her life force sapped out like the gelflings Mm. in the dark crystal at the end of the movie yeah yeah i did feel like she was constantly getting in trouble though Mm. like stay here and she didn't and then gets caught kind of thing yeah like i did kind (laughs) of want her to do a little more and not just be a bit useless all the time (laughs) but i do feel like there was a character arc Mm. she was very scared at the start like when they were gonna um slide down the ropes to get away from the big fat suit baby creatures (laughs) and she was like she didn't want to jump and like over the course of the film she got more and more sort of brave and then at the end being able to escape the maze the deadly maze Um, yeah it's like an achievement i guess like you know she got over her fears so there was a sense of development but i did kind of want nikki to do more things yeah have a little bit more agency Mm. and i don't know whether did she actually contribute she was there sort of as a tracker or a guide on the planet yeah so the second time i watched it it did feel like she was going in the right direction Mm. but then after they escape the water amazonians they're kind of lost and they're just kind of going wherever and somehow they managed to meet up with um, (laughs) washington i don't know how and then they go uh, in the right direction i don't know yeah but yeah i guess she was helpful yeah guiding him to forbidden zone yeah that was one aspect of it that i didn't think was too great because i mean a lot of people say this about the lord of the rings trilogy that it's essentially just traipsing from x to y and just occasionally coming up against the monster of this scene this scene it's the amazonian merladies this scene it's the fat baby maggot people yeah 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 i do really like that type of movie like it's very fantasy adventure movie format like it's very similar to like you know never ending story or like stardust or like all those kind of fantasy movies where they go into a new alternate reality where they have to deal with all these things normally though 
they do make friends along the way. Mm. In this movie, they don't really. I mean, they come across the resistance guys again. Yeah. Um, and also Washington a couple of times. But I don't know, like the Amazonian woman, I wanted to see that explored. Right. It could have been that he gathered up people to sort of rebel against Overdog, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would have been, been interesting. interesting. But no. But instead, he just, you know, shoots this kind of Nerf gun. Uh, people and they uh, just escape it and that's that and it gets a bit sort of episodic and repetitive after a while i did notice that i did notice how every sort of challenge they were faced with they just drove off yeah like with the molotov <laughs> cocktail children they just drive like 100 meters this way and they're out of danger yeah like, that's it mm. um, the amazonians they just have to shoot the dragon and that's it. You know, like it seems quite easy dangers to overcome. Yeah. What did you think of Michael Ironside as a villain? Because I wasn't sure how formidable he was because he was kind of like a piece of furniture on a crane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I felt like that as well. Like he had his menacing voice mm. where it was all encompassing. But yeah, he was attached all the time. You know, he was he was like a, a desk clamp, essentially, <laughs> with two claws, you know? Like, it's, it's like, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. All you had to do was just step backwards and then, you know, uh, you can't get me now. <laughs> Although he did shoot those fireballs, so there was that as well. Yeah. But yeah, I kind of wanted him to, like, have this big reveal where his spider legs came out and suddenly yeah. he was mobile. But he was just still attached. And dispensed with rather easily, I thought. Yeah. And again, similar to Molly Ringwald, not a lot to do. No. He wasn't that evil, apart from watching a girl getting undressed slowly. Yes. And going, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought, oh, how long is this scene going on for? But mercifully... Not that long. Yeah, and you don't see very much. You don't see very much. It's not exploitation. No, it's not. And the next time you see them in their little cage in a dungeon, they're fully dressed again. Mm. So obviously he gave them the clothes back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was confused by so a few things. Uh, firstly, when they kidnapped the girls, they clearly break their necks. Yes, I uh, noted that down as well. What? You hear it on the soundtrack. <laughs> so they're either paralyzed from the neck down or, or they're, they're dead. dead. But, <laughs> so. but no, they are revived later on. They're perfectly fine. But I just was very confused by that. I thought, yeah. well, what's the point of abducting these corpses? <laughs> I know. Well, they did look very floppy when they were being picked up and flown away on the hang gliders. Yeah. Another thing I did find that was a problem with this movie is the three women were given zero characters. No. They weren't characters. They didn't have names. Yeah. <laughs> they were just plot points, really. <laughs> like, yeah. It would have been much more depth. And like sort of a reason to save these girls. Like why were they that important? No idea. Anyway, <laughs> like they weren't princesses or anything. They were just three attractive girls that just happened to be abducted. Yeah, three tourists. Like I don't get it. And you didn't get to know them at all. They had hardly any speaking lines. They're just breathing MacGuffins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, another thing I was confused by, so this planet had a plague, so everyone died of this plague, but it's never really referred to or really explored again. No. They didn't have to wear any, like, masks or have any vaccinations or anything. Like, it was just seemed to be like, oh, well, everyone died of the plague. Yeah. And now we're just a bunch of people that worship this claw guy yeah i think the mutation like the children with the molotov cocktails i think nikki says something about these are the results of the overdogs genetic mutations oh, okay. to try and cure the plague or some, uh, something oh something like really oh, okay right, i don't right, know right. it's the cliche again where like the bad guys are the deformed ones yeah of <laughs> course the, the, the good guys are just normal yeah <laughs> so yeah <laughs> Just another tiny little confusing part of the movie uh, when Nikki gets pulled underwater and it's backwards. Yeah. The footage is backwards. I don't... What? Yeah. <laughs> don't know what happened there. No. They must have had not had enough coverage and they just had to utilize whatever they had. And they're like, oh, she needs to be pulled under. So let's just reverse the footage. Yeah, exactly. Which is one of those moments that really does feel a little bit like Star Wars. There are several of them. Mm-hmm. That sort of echoes the trash compactor scene in the Death Star. The fact that the inciting incident is an escape pod crash landing on a desert planet and then a gold figure uh-huh. steps out out of it only to be menaced by weird creatures in robes and then a tracked vehicle yes. pulls up I mean, mm. you've got the Han Solo figure referring to a female character as princess and kid all the way through it yeah the princess is approached actually it's lots of princesses by a minion holding a needle which is just like mm-hmm. Princess Leia and the Death Star although in this case it's the needle coming right at you because it's 3D. Because it's 3D. Oh, of course. Yeah. I, I was wondering why, like, why is this shot so long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's something we should talk about is the whole 3D craze, which right, yes. 3D really sort of rears its ugly head every time cinema feels threatened by some sort of change in home media. Right. So in the 50s, it cropped up as one of the many things like CinemaScope and so on mm-hmm. that were introduced to try and compete with television. Ah, okay. It later resurges in the 80s after the popularity of video, home video emerging. Right. And yes, now, of, of course, course, it's back again with the emergence of streaming, which means that nobody wants to go out. So they have to make it a theme park ride. So, uh-huh. and for some reason, Yeah, 1983, it just went crazy. Uh, More than 60 movies were announced as in production at the time. But uh, Starburst in December of 1983 said that they only knew of 13 Uh that had been finished. Chief among them for fans of our genres will be a bunch of franchises that just so happened to be hitting their third installment around this time. So you've got Amityville 3D, Jaws 3D, and Friday the 13th 3D. Uh And you also had the cheapies, so Metal Storm and Parasite from Charles Band and this one Space Hunter which was a Canadian Mm co-production and the producer said 
Oh, that one was hell. <laughs> Just as we were in pre-production, Jaws 3 came out in 3D and proved to be a success. So the powers that be told us that we needed to shoot our movie in 3D. Oh, no. I knew nothing about the technology and unfortunately, the National Film Board here in Canada only had these huge cameras for 3D filming. They were about the size of refrigerators. Wow. It did not come out that well because when I flew into Colombia with the rough cut, they said, well, why isn't there anything being thrown at the screen? Yeah. And I said, we tried to get the director, Lamont Johnson, to do some 3D effects, and he wouldn't do it. He called 3D a piece of shit. Wow. So our line producer, Don Carmody, had to film at night when the director had gone to bed what? and throw things at the camera, like a scene where the girls come out of a lake and throw spears at the hero. So, yeah... This was not such a great experience. Wow. I don't think there was a scene with spears being thrown, though. No, was I it? don't think it ended up in the movie. This is the thing. I don't think there's an awful lot of that sort of stuff, like in Friday the 13th, where, you know, scythes and sticks and yo-yos yeah, yeah, being yeah. thrust toward the camera. There isn't really... The syringe is the only thing I can think of. Whereas most of the time, I think Lamont Johnson was going for something much more like Hitchcock did in Dial M for Murder, which was more of a sense of making you feel like you were in uh -huh, a place because uh -huh. there are lots of beautifully composed shots where there are characters way in the foreground and characters way in the background in these beautiful desert landscapes out in Utah. Right. Yeah, you just yeah. get a sense that with the staging of it and the camera movement, he's really trying to give you that, look at the depth of this. Mm. I think that's what he was going for, not poking you in the eye with something. Yeah, I mean, I guess the dragon and the, the water world would have looked quite cool because it, it was kind of like a you know, suspended in the air. Yeah. And apparently the gauntlet at the end was pretty good. Oh, yeah. You would have had all the saws and the fire and stuff. That's true. Yeah, coming at you. And yeah. Yeah. So apparently that sequence was sort of a highlight. Oh, okay, yeah. The climax of the film. Yeah, one of the 3D version is available somewhere. That would be interesting to watch. It possibly could be wheeled out at some point, like, you know, House of Wax, which is one of the most famous ones from the 50s. Often there's a revival and it gets wheeled back out again for a cinema oh, okay, presentation. Okay, right, right, right. Yeah. So you never know. It could yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just one note. This is our second 3D movie that were covered on the pod because The Hole was also a 3D movie. Of course, yes, the Joe Dante <laughs> yeah. movie. Yeah. Although I didn't see it in 3D ever. I didn't see it no, theatrically. No, no, me neither. No. I mean, I for one haven't seen many 3D movies. No? <sighs> yeah, I think I saw... Tron Legacy. And that was mm. actually interesting. Okay. With that movie, they, they only made the 3D effect in the Tron world. Oh, so every cool. time they were in the normal world, it was just 2D. Mm. As soon as they went into the Tron world, 3D, it was like this magical experience of being in this other world. Oh, that's cool. That's like Wizard of Oz going from black and white to color. Yeah, similar experience. The thing with 3D is you just need things to be flying in the air in slow motion all the time. <laughs> and that would be great. And that's that's the movie. <laughs> yeah. But you can't really have a movie like that. <laughs> no. One thing I'd say is my most recent uh, 3D experience was going to see Jaws in 3D, not Jaws 3D. They retrofitted Spielberg's original oh, in right. 3D. And that was actually really good. But okay. what it sort of highlighted was that Spielberg is just a fantastic director in terms of creating 
a space uh, and composing a great shot. Yeah, yeah. Because all these scenes where the camera is panning slowly along, Brody's in the middle distance, there are picket fences right in the foreground, there are roses right. hanging in the right-hand side of the frame out of focus. You just suddenly realise, actually, he's just really good at composing great shots mm, with moving mm. camera. Yeah. It was beautifully done. It looked as though it had been designed that way. Yeah. Whereas Jaws 3D is a piece of shit. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's terrible. I haven't seen it. Because I, I remember for a while after the first Avatar movie came out, suddenly every movie was coming out in 3D, but they weren't really filmed in 3D. No. So I remember when one of the parts of the Caribbean came out. I think we saw the trailer when we were watching Tron, before Tron. Yeah. Um, and it just looked like cardboard cutouts at differing depths in the screen. Like, it didn't actually look 3D. Like, they'd obviously not really thought about it. Yeah. Or maybe they just converted it to 3D. Yeah, I think a lot of them were post-converted, and there was that big debate about post-converted versus native 3D shot movies. Mm, mm. And yet, the Jaws one, I don't know who did it, but it was done very, very well. It really did have dimensionality to it. It wasn't like multiplane animation or something yeah right, no, right it looked right, really right. good yeah but yeah i find it kind of gimmicky i'm not really sold on it i guess i'm just a yeah. traditionalist i just want to watch a great movie well for me you have to be the right distance away from the screen for starters mm, you can't yeah. be too close you can't be too far away and also i'm a glasses wearer Yes. So 3D glasses on top of glasses is just the most stupid thing. <laughs> um, it just doesn't really work. It's not comfortable. It looks dumb. And it's, yeah, it just doesn't work. No. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what thrilling piece of trivia did you discover in your Forbidden Zone today? Well, in the scene uh, where Wolf wakes his uh, android uh, partner, Chalmers, you can actually see a copy of uh, a book on her on her blanket. It's R-U-R, which is uh, Rossum's Universal Robots. It's a famous 1921 science fiction play by Czech writer Karel Kapik, which first introduced the word robot to the English language and just science fiction in general. Um, oh, and wow. of course, this foreshadows the reveal that Chalmers is in fact a uh, robot android. So it's really it's such a tiny little detail. Like I didn't notice uh, when I first watched it. No. It's a, yeah, nice one. It's, it's, would have been a more subtle hint than her malfunctioning yeah, later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently in the play, uh, artificial people, roboti, uh, are made with synthetic organic matter. So they look exactly like humans. And, and they apparently, they, they think like humans as well. Um, but they later revolt and cause the extinction of humanity. So <laughs> a bit of a dystopian future. <laughs> But this was written uh, in 1921. That's amazing. Yeah. So around the time of Metropolis, I guess. Mm, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Cool. I have a fun, silly bit of trivia yeah. that I always trot out whenever talking about 3D movies. Yeah. Sure. I mentioned House of Wax from 1953, which was one of the most groundbreaking and successful and praised 3D movies. Uh -huh. Interestingly, it was directed uh, by a man named Andre de Toth, 
not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, who rather famously only had one eye that ah. worked. What? How do you direct a 3D movie with one eye? <laughs> uh, well, there you go. Just goes to show what a great director he was in terms of composing shots because he was composing shots for a 3D system that he would never benefit from. Wow. So, yeah, he had no depth perception at all. Oh, my God. So, well done, Andre de Toth. Wow. <laughs> it's impressive. That is impressive. And that's our trivia. Yes. I want to go back to some of the, not flaws, but some of the parts of this movie that I wished uh, were improved. Mm. So Chalmers is a character at the start of the movie, his sidekick android, spoilers. Yeah. She's killed far too soon. Yes. Like, why didn't they keep her for a bit longer? It's a bit of a shocker as well. I mean, they hint early on that she may not be human because she sort of malfunctions on the word money. Yeah, yeah, she, she does. Yeah, and but it's odd because you're like, what, what just happened just then? Did she have a stroke? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She just like <laughs> mid-sentence just, yeah, just stops talking. But yeah, I, I really liked her and I did like the dynamic. Like, it did actually show he did have warmth. Mm. To another person or android. Like he wasn't just a cold-hearted, disgruntled hero. But then she's killed off in like 10 minutes. It's yeah, a bit of a shame. Did she need to be melted down on the desert floor? It's just, I know. It just I seemed know. a bit unnecessary and also quite creepy because her eyebrow sort of slides off her face like yeah. a dead caterpillar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At first, when they show her, it's like, well, that's definitely not her because that's just a mannequin. But yeah. the melting effect was really cool. I expected her to come back. I thought he had like some spears in the ship. You know, it's like, oh, I've got, got some charmers <laughs> in the back. Spear charmers. Um, but no, she's just gone from the movie. That's it. No more charmers. And that's the thing that reminds me of Cherry 2000, because that is, I think that's about a guy who is traveling across the desert to get spare parts for his broken sex bot. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> she breaks at the beginning. Yeah, and right. so he's actually trying to like get her a new hard drive or something. Okay, 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 yeah. okay. The visual look of this movie, I thought, was inconsistent. Special effects-wise and sort of visually, the first scene with the spaceship cruiser going through the wormhole thing, I, that looked awful. Like, I know. really bad. Like, 60s bad. The clouds just look like cotton wool. They are. <laughs> I, I don't know what was going on there. But, yeah, just really bad. But then you've got scenes on the planet with the matte paintings just stunning yeah stunning backgrounds i know it's it's very inconsistent i mean it's pioneering work so you have to give the guy some credit so the visual effects are being supervised by gene warren jr okay and it's fantasy two effects and so they were trying to do spaceship effects and miniature work on the desert so like when you see the truck that he's driving going through sort of coming off the spaceship and driving off that's all miniature work mm. very similar to the work that they did for aliens as well the apc coming right. out of the dropship ah. it's all that's all fantasy too they're really good at what they do but they're trying to do it for the very first time in 3D and filming it on two cameras at once. Oh, right, the whole okay. way that that works is you have two cameras that are like a human eye's distance apart so that you can then use the Polaroid system to right, you right, know, right, get right. you to see the depth. Mm -hmm. But they're trying to do it with miniatures, so then they're trying to calculate the distance the cameras need to be 
apart from each other for the scale to seem right. Oh, so right, like right. having the cameras like a sixteenth of an inch apart from each other just so Oh that my god. It was pioneering stuff. There's a great article yeah. about it in Cinema Fantastique magazine. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was painstaking work breaking new ground but they had to do it really really fast because the producers decided to release the film three or four weeks earlier than they'd originally planned because they wanted to get it into theaters the week before return of the jedi was due to come out (laughs) okay yeah i mean it would have been buried if it was after return of the jedi exactly so it debuted on may 20th 1983, five days before Return of the Jedi. Wow, that's not a lot of days. It's not, no. (laughs) It's almost not worth it. No, so they garnered $16.5 million and a $14.4 million budget and then were just completely wiped out by Return of the Jedi, which earned $475 million worldwide. So yeah, so they were rushing and sometimes they had to use test footage. So sometimes you get things like that opening shot of this luxury space liner yeah which because of the lighting effects that they've got on these concentric rings on the back of it Terrible. it's really screwing with the blue screen so it's making the mat go sort of like these sort of blotchy black bits yeah yeah it, yeah it just really looks, bad it's like an inept youtuber doing chroma key for the first <laughs> time and sadly the voiceover is saying something about this breathtaking effect that you're seeing now. And I thought, <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, um, no. And descending through the system with the concentric rings of differently lit cotton wool. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. charming. But 1983, you know, that's, yeah. that's not good enough. It's not. And when you compare it to 1985, like the cotton wool cloud effects that we saw in Explorers by Industrial Light and Magic, mm. flawless. Yeah. So they were pioneering. They were working very fast on a very small budget. And they, yeah, mm. it's hit and miss. Yeah. I mean, the, the miniature work was pretty good but you could tell yeah it was miniatures like every time like wolf's spaceship when they first introduced wolf in the spaceship it's like wow this is obviously a model and this is yeah. this asteroid is obviously not a real asteroid no like it just didn't quite look right and maybe it's just a matter of like it just didn't translate because they were filming in 3d and maybe it looked great in 3d but it just didn't translate to like 2D. Yeah. Lighting wise and just how it moved. And yeah, the miniature work on, on the planet was actually really good, I thought. Like when yeah. his spaceship first lands, that looks amazing. Yeah. It looks real. I thought the locations were really good. Was it Nevada you said that they filmed? I think it's Utah. Utah? Yeah. yeah and, and also Vasquez Rock. So you're the one that was used for Star Trek, the original TV show over ah, and over again. Right. So yeah. 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 No, I mean, location-wise, looked good. I loved the water scene with the sort of metal. It almost looked like mangroves, like yes. mangrove tree roots, but they were metal. Like, it looked amazing. Yeah, they I wrote really that down good. as well, metallic mangroves, yeah. Yeah. There's some great production design in there, and then sometimes it's sort of going for that lived-in Star Wars look, but it just looks like a mess. Yeah, it kind of just looked like they just threw all the trash yeah. on the walls. You know, like when they enter the Forbidden Zone, it literally looks like trash being stuck to 
the walls and the floor and all uh, some of the costumes just look like what were they going for here just like everything like just yeah. put everything on this person i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah stick all the bits of metal on his face that's fine yeah i felt like there wasn't a clear look or difference in look between the bad guys and the sort of rebellion resistance. Yeah, so you, when you have that skiff, like Jabba's sail barge battle at the beginning that's actually a ship on rails for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I didn't right, know yeah. who was good and who was bad or who to yeah. root for. And it's quite funny in the dialogue because Wolf says to his robot, yeah. I'm going in, and she says, on whose side? And he says, mine. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I know. Who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. It's not very consistently well-designed, mm. but there are some really nice things in it. Yeah, that's the thing. Mm. There are some really wow moments in the movie where it just looks really, really incredible, but yeah. then other shots where it's just like, wow, that just looks like they're just stuck bubble wrap to a thing yeah or they just found some really really cheap fat suits and just shoved <laughs> some people with them like i mean those fat suits were terrible yeah like, i mean you could see all the folds and the creases and everything it just looked like a person in a fat suit yeah what were they going for there like <laughs> i really don't know i don't know it didn't have the body horror effect like it didn't look that horrific and you, it just looked i don't know not believable i guess no so the production design is inconsistent. What did you think of post-production elements like music by the great Elmer Bernstein, composer of The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape and To Kill a Mockingbird? I was shocked uh, by the music, <laughs> to be honest, because Elmer Bernstein, he is a very renowned composer. I mean, American Werewolf in London as well. But he also did Saturn Three. He did. We've bumped into him before. Yeah. <laughs> And, and also Ghostbusters, like that's an iconic score there. Yeah. But I hated the music in this movie. <laughs> it was just so mismatched. Like sonically, it sounded like either a swashbuckling war movie. Yes. Like it's almost like Hogan's Heroes type music. Yeah. Or it felt like a Western. They should be riding on horseback and like gunslinging, that sort of thing. It didn't feel like a sci-fi at all, music-wise. Except possibly for the inclusion of Elmer Bernstein's favourite instrument around this time, a very early electronic instrument called the Anders Martineau. Oh, Anders Martineau, yes. 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 Radiohead love that instrument. They use it a lot. So it's kind of like a theremin. It's got a keyboard, though, and there, but there's still something else that you're waving your hand over. Yeah, yeah. You, there's like a slide you can do, like, really great... Um, um, glissandies and stuff for that. It's a really cool instrument. Yeah, it's a cool instrument. Not in the hands of Elmer Bernstein, though, I would argue. It's in Ghostbusters, it's in The Black Cauldron, it's in all of his fantasy sci-fi oh, okay. scores around this time. I'm surprised it's not an American werewolf in London, to be honest. Right. <laughs> um, and he uses it here for Nikki's theme. Okay, I quite like that theme, actually. That wasn't too bad. It's the best of the bunch. I'm not keen on the way that he uses the Ondas Martin, though, how you pronounce it. <laughs> There's just something about it that just seems, I don't know, out of place and cheap and cheesy mm, to me. Yeah, Whereas yeah. had it been like a woodwind instrument or if he'd used the machine more artfully, then maybe it would have been interesting. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, my biggest bugbear with the music was just the, uh, the triumphant trumpets. Yes. Just didn't work. 
It was almost like it took away from the scene rather than added to the scene. Yeah. It just sounded so cheesy and, and quite small as well. It's not like Indiana Jones epic. It's quite sort of TV movie or TV series small. Well, that's because it's quite gappy, isn't it? It's very staccato. Yeah. It's a sort of lead instrument over the top of everything else, just going bump, 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 bump. Mm, yeah, and a lot of military kind of sounds and like this bunch of snare drum and yeah, it just doesn't work. I didn't. I don't think it worked at all. No, I did not buy this one of <laughs> the <laughs> many albums that were released by uh, Varese Saraband as a limited edition, two thousand copies only club mm-hmm. album. This was not one I picked up. Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards! Okay, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite scazzy parts of the film and a number of child-throwing Molotov cocktail exploding categories. <laughs> Best quote. Well, I did a lot of brain working on this one. Nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, my favourite quote comes from Nikki, who comes out with a lot of naive little gems mm-hmm, here mm-hmm. and there. And um, <laughs> uh, when Wolf refers to himself as a loner, she replies, us loners got to stick together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, great. Kind of defeats uh, mm. the purpose of being a loner, right? <laughs> yeah, Exactly. But it sort of describes the two of them quite well. Mm. So she's quite self-sufficient too. Yeah, that's true. Girl on her own on a desert planet. She's sort of like Rey from the new Star Wars movies. So yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I like that. My favourite quote, I I think it's a lot of people's favourite quote. It's uh, it's when Wolf first catches Nikki trying to steal his vehicle and he asks her, what the hell are you? And she retorts back, what do you think I am, you scrawny earthbag? I'm a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Best hair or costume? I don't know. I, I do feel like the approach to hair and costume in this movie was a very similar approach to Waterworld, where it's like, it's the apocalypse. Let's just just stick trash to everyone. Like, everyone looked <laughs> filthy and disgusting. <laughs> Um, But the mad scientist, chemist, alchemist guy was like just the epitome of just trash. Like he was just covered in like what looked like needles and just plastic tubing and just all sorts of garbage. Yeah, it looked Mm. uncomfortable. Like the sort of thing you don't want to sit on because you're probably going to hurt yourself. Yeah. But again, not very well designed, I didn't think. It didn't I look know. deliberate. It just looked like he'd rolled in some stuff. Yeah, I know. Yeah, they just like put glue on him and just told him to roll in a pile of like garbage. <laughs> yeah. Um, my favorite was uh, the three ladies, but particularly when they landed oh, in their yes. super duper escape outfits, their spacesuits. Which, for some reason, were, you know, highly polished gold. Yeah. And had three tentacles on their breasts. I know. Why? Very strange. And it looked like to be breathing as well, like kind of pulsating. Yeah. It's very odd. I I thought they they were were aliens. Articulated. I thought they were aliens. Yeah, I did too. (laughs) But... I didn't know what the hell was going on. I did feel like some of the sort of protrusions kind of resembled, (laughs) um, like, you know, those, those metallic... Uh, party balloons you buy for like yeah. you know birthday parties 
<laughs> kind of look like that. Yeah. <laughs> Most 80s moment. Uh, for me, I put hang gliders oh, in movies. Yes, right. Being an 80s yeah. thing. They're plucking up the ladies like the eagles from Lord of the Rings. And it's, you know, it's impressively precise stunt work trying to sort of hook these mm. people as they go past. But they're quite obviously dummies. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it cropped up also, obviously, Ewoks in Return of the Jedi mm, and also course. in both of the Ewok movies oh, that yes, we had to watch. That's, that's right. <laughs> yes. Uh, You're the Hunter from the Future, which came out the same year. Mannequin, oddly enough, has a oh, hang gliding okay, sequence yeah. in it. So does Short Circuit 2. And the late 80s, the uh, Mark Hamill starring science fiction adventure Slipstream. Oh, okay. Which Right. It's very hard to find these days. Yeah. I would like to look at that one. Um, 80s for me, uh, the future is is punk or steampunk. Uh, it's very yeah. 80s uh, thing. Everything was very punky back then. Oh, yeah. That was the fear. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's obviously trying ripping off Mad Max. Like, Mad Max 1 and 2 had already come out by, this, by the time this movie mm. came out. So, like, just, yeah, ripping off all of that sort of steampunky like uh rusty like let's just throw some metal panels on this bulldozer or snowplow and call it a day kind of thing like yeah very yeah. 80s very much so favorite scene uh, i quite like the maze scene like it did it did kind of remind me of indiana jones a little bit she does a barrel roll at, at one point um, similar to um, Last Crusade. But yeah, I, I thought it was great. It was really good to see her make it through by herself without any help. But yeah, just like, a, it looked really perilous too. That was her. That was Molly going through all of that. Like, I don't it know. It looks like it, yeah. I didn't seem to see any stunt doubles, so... I don't know. It must have been terrifying. Yeah, that's what I thought when I was watching. Because there's, yeah, a lot of sort of spiky things. The unless fire. it was all rubber. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know the fire was really close to her too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much she was acting in that scene. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> <I> dangerous. <know. laughs> uh, Favourite scene for you? I'm not sure that I had one. I think probably that sequence at the end is the only point at which it seems to sort of come to life. Mm. Once you've got the overlord there and they're trying to do something and escape. Yeah. Because, yeah, the rest of it I found fairly episodic and not particularly much of a threat. Yeah. Most cliche moment. So my biggest cliche is one that is known as the load-bearing boss. And what is meant by this is that as soon as the big villain dies, his fortress or lair collapses and explodes. <laughs> yeah. And nobody yeah. quite understands why this happens. Wow, that's um, true. <laughs> um, see also Big Trouble in Little China. Carrie, even Carrie's house collapses ah, when she dies. Yeah, uh, you're the, uh, the the hunter from from beyond space or whatever the hell that was. Mm -hmm. uh, it chapter two. Oh, Pennywise's yes. lair collapses yes. after he dies. It happens in Spawn and pretty much every James Bond film starring uh, Roger course. Moore. Yeah, it sort yeah, of happened. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I never even realised that, but that's very true. It is, yeah. Load-bearing boss. There you go. <laughs> 
Uh, cliche for me, uh, it's a scene where Wolf investigates like that, that sort of base camp headquarters, sort of original medical team base, um, and he falls into it and uh, into dead bodies. Uh, or or, oh, or yeah. dead bodies falling on him. I don't know. That seemed to be a very big cliche in the 80s and 90s. I, I'm sure Indiana, it happened in Indiana Jones or, it does, e, yeah, or the yeah. Goonies or, or something yes. like that. Yeah. All those movies, there's always like a scare scene where like a dead body falls on a person. Um, it's such a huge cliche yeah. of the 80s and 90s. It is, yeah, you're absolutely right. Best special effect. Uh, I, I do have quite a few favorite special effects. I think uh, there were some great effects in this movie. Uh, Charmer's melting. Mm-hmm. Not the original shot of her, which obviously it's a mannequin. But when she's melting, oh, just amazing. Like it's It's horrifying at the same time. Um, Overdog, mm. when he, with the blasting fireballs, wow, looks amazing. Like, I don't know how they did that, but looked, you know, scary and, and terrifying. Yeah, it's, it's not rotoscoped animation at all, is it? It's actually a physical thing in yeah. the room, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're not as big as the fireballs in, in Firestarter, but still, mm. like, that's impressive, really impressive. Yeah. Uh, and also, in terms of best set, that, that water scene, oh, just astounding like really 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 great um set work there with the the piping looking like tree roots really really good yeah that's great stuff yeah i had the um the overdog's makeup ah yes just making michael ironside look even more evil than he's ever looked before with these deep sunken eyes and these metallic teeth and that sort of metallic head plate sort of exposed mm, like he's got a metal skull on the yeah. back of his head i mean his face looked uh, really imposing and it's the work of someone that we've come across before on the podcast tom berman who was mentioned in relation to the thing with two heads oh right uh, where <laughs> i think he was a, a spare arm or something right um, oh with the gorilla that's right yeah he was um, one of Tom Woodruff's early inspirations, ah. and he worked on Planet of the Apes, Close Encounters, The Sloth in Goonies, Dr. Jenning in Howard the Duck, oh, which wow. we've done. Yeah, so he, he has a long storied history, wow. but that's his work in this movie. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great work. Mm, yeah, really great work. Favourite sound effect. So I didn't have a favourite sound effect, but I wanted to note a couple that I thought were a bit dodgy. Oh, uh, yes. One of them, when uh, Wolf uses repair protocol number one or whatever it was, oh, yes, yes. and kicks his ship, you hear the R2-D2... I did noise hear that. that yeah. He makes after the Jawas electrocute him and he passes out. So I, th- I think Ben Burt should be calling his lawyer, frankly. Ah, yeah, uh, yeah. Very cheeky. And also during the sort of sail barge ship in the desert fight scene, I was just rather amused. I kept hearing the 44 Magnum sound from Dirty Harry's oh, right. gun yeah. going off on a regular basis. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's I'm not expecting that in my laser battle, mm, <laughs> generally yeah, speaking. Yeah, yeah. My favourite sound, I quite like the gliders. They had this kind of metal scraping, like pterodactyl screech sound when they were sort of gliding along. Oh, cool. I don't know how they were making yeah, that yeah. sound, but it, it sort of gave them sort of a, a sonic quality to them. They weren't just silent gliders, yeah. you know. 
That's not yeah. scary. No, that's silence. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> no. Most <laughs> funniest moment. You've mentioned it several times before, but the scene that made me crease up in hysterics was the uh, yeah the bubble wrapped bat people. I think they were supposed to be. That's what it says in the script. Right. But yes, as you've mentioned before. Uh, and as Molly Ringwald herself said in a later interview that I watched, she speculated whether there was some miscommunication because they just look like fat people. Yeah, they did. People. I don't. And they were supposed to be bat people. White. Bat people. Yes, wow. hanging upside down from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. No, in their bubble wrap cocoons. That's what they were supposed to be, but Molly wonders if yeah somebody there was a typo or something because yeah. they and were just these... like fat people. <laughs> yeah, Funny. fat people just like bloated white corpses being dragged out of a river. Yeah, but the the bit where I was wetting myself was where they were sort of sliding from the roof out of like t- tubes. Yeah, I know. There was, I don't know, like turds being yeah, pushed out that's or something what I, I don't know as well it's like it's getting pooped out <laughs> <laughs> and that's our mood please and that's our mood please yes. yes hi this is michael french from retroblasting and you're listening to movie oubliette all right it's final verdict time should 1983's space hunter adventures in the the Forbidden Zone be released from the oubliette to abduct 60s Barbarella models and be adored by the scavy masses? <laughs> or should it be sent through the maze to fall into a pit of acid and thrust back into oubliette, never to be seen again? So, uh, essentially, a double blind for us, Conrad. None of yes, us have seen this. Unexpectedly. <laughs> <laughs> double blind. Unintentional double blind. Uh, what are your final thoughts on this movie? It's a mixed bag, isn't it? Because there's so much of it that is handsomely produced and better than you would expect, say, from like a, a Corman or Charles mm. Band cheapy. There are some great shots in it. There's obviously been a lot of care and love and attention put into some of the work in the movie. Molly Ringwald's great. Peter Strauss is fine. Mm. I like the character dynamics. I was relieved that it didn't go in a dodgy area considering <laughs> the age difference and yes. Molly being underage. But I don't I just was kind of blah though most of the time. Like they we just sort of moved from A to B and not much peril and not much point or stakes and uh, yeah as you say very well put that you know, what they're heading for is very clear, but it's just they're three people that are just a MacGuffin and mm-hmm. have no character or even any names. Yeah. The ending's slightly rousing, but then the big bad gets killed pretty quickly and he's like a washing machine. So it's, <laughs> I don't know. I just found the whole thing sort of oddly blah, and I'm sure I will have forgotten it. So if I did watch it on VHS, I can understand why I don't remember it, and I'm confusing it with Cherry 2000. So I can't say I would feel particularly compelled to uh, thrust it out of the oubliette. I think it's it's quite happy in there, really. Right, 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 right. (laughs) I did want to ask, uh, why is it called Space Hunter? I don't know. What space were they hunting? (laughs) <laughs> well, was that his I, job I was hunting normally? for space in it. Yeah, yeah. possibly. <laughs> was he normally hunting for people? Was that his job? I, I was confused. No, it went through various 
names during its production. Ah, I don't know why it landed on Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. I mean, it's a bit of a mouthful. Oh, it is. It is. It is. It is. Uh, For me, this movie is deeply flawed. There's a lot of flaws. There's a lot of things I could pick out that, oh, they should have done this better. You know, they should have had Chalmers more in the movie, given Molly Ringwald more more things to do. The, The three girls being saved, like, they could have had some more character development. Mm. Even Overdog, like, give him a little bit more to do. Maybe some legs. Um, <laughs> I Like, there, there's a lot wrong with this movie, but I really did enjoy the world building. I enjoyed the sort of threats that they were faced with. I really loved the dynamic between Nikki and Wolf and also Washington as well. I like the, the visuals. The, the special effects, the Mad Max obvious ripoff, but I still enjoyed that. <laughs> I really did enjoy that. It felt disgusting and dirty, and everyone was just covered in mud all the time. <laughs> like Molly gets one <laughs> one wash, and then she's back to being grimy again. And the next scene, it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's hilarious. So I don't know. There's a I somehow really enjoyed this movie. Like I was there for the ride. Like. I don't know. Comparing it to Battle Beyond the Stars, it was much, much more enjoyable for me. There was a clear goal, and okay. you know they saved the day, and everyone's happy, and Overdog has exploded. Yeah, that's all I ever wanted in a movie. But I, I think it's the whole <laughs> adventure part. Like I really like that. They're on a journey. They have a whole bunch of perils along the way, and then they um, defeat the villain. The end, and that that's it. You know, there's not much to it. Like it's it's not trying for anything grand here. Like it's mm. it's this is the type of movie that if it came on late at night, it's exactly the type of movie I would want to watch. Yeah, and I suppose it, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's about eighty five minutes. Yeah, so it's not it's not long. Yeah, it whistles along. So yeah, I would I would release this movie. Oh, so not a coin of fate today because no, no coin of fate because now our mid and upper tier patrons get to vote themselves, and they have the casting vote. Yeah. So uh, let me just tot up the numbers and uh, pull off the printout here. <laughs> and the verdict is, they want to set it free. Ah, oh, wow. <laughs> Yes, yeah. in my favour. <laughs> yeah, it's just me that's grumpy again. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah, Eddie Coulter says, I say let it go. Of course, this may be because of nostalgia, as I have fond memories of seeing it at the drive-in back in the 80s. Would be a great drive-in movie. That's what I thought, and I asked if it was a double bill, and he says that he was, if he remembers correctly, it was shown with the Twilight Zone movie. Oh, so, yeah. okay. Not a bad combo, com- considering Lamont Johnson's uh, pedigree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chazilla says, as annoying as Molly Ringwald is, I still enjoy all the performances in this film. They ripped off so many sci-fi films and still managed a cohesive story. Space Hunter deserves to be set free. Mm-hmm. And Filippo says, not to be confused with the 1980 Forbidden Zone. Now that is one trip of a movie. Ah. Yeah, I think I've seen that movie. Yeah, American absurdist musical fantasy comedy film produced and directed by Richard Elfman with music by Danny. Oh, Must be his brother. I don't think I have seen that movie. I'm thinking of Forbidden Planet. Ah, Different movie. (laughs) Different movie, yeah. Yeah. The 50s, 60s. Yeah, 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 it's a bit of an older one, older sci-fi. 
Yes, our patrons have spoken, so... Yes. Off you go, space yeah. hunters. Yes, charmers, set a course for the forbidden zone. Oh. Another one escapes the fault. That's two we've let go so far I know. this year. Two for two. Doing well, doing well. Mm. I, I like this uh, patron vote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, all it for it. Grumpy Conrad gets outvoted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Wait till we do something from the noughties. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get outvoted there. You might get punished there. We'll see. All the 90s, we'll yeah. See. <laughs> yeah, all the 90s. But listeners, if you want to keep up with our future episodes, you can follow us on all our social media as Movie Oubliette, or you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Yes, and if you would like to be voting on whether the film should be set free or not, then come on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar you get access to extended chunks of the show. Mm -hmm. For $5, you get to vote and get access to our monthly minisodes. And for $10, you can be an executive producer on the show like Eddie Coulter, Chazilla and Isaac Sutton. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we also have uh, merchandise available at Redbubble, everything you ever wanted, on everything. And we do have a YouTube page as well where we dive deep into movies with our video essays. We do, yes. So, Conrad, I guess it's time to reveal what we are doing next episode. Well, we're still going to be in the 80s, Dan. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. <laughs> but right. we will be finally doing a film that was requested by my brother over and over again in the early years of the podcast uh-huh. and was never picked. So I thought I would pick this from my pile of Blu-rays that yes. we haven't covered yet. It's the 1986 independently made action fantasy film, The Wraith. Oh, no, never heard of this one. Ah, well, it's got a good lineup. It stars Charlie Sheen, Sherilyn Fenn, Randy Quaid, and Nick Cassavetes. Right. Something to look forward to. A nice change from sci-fi. Nice change from sci-fi, yes. It's a, a ghost revenge movie, I think. Oh, okay. So, yeah, well, we can't wait. Ghosts in a while. <laughs> no, we haven't. Sounds like fun. <laughs> it does. All right, listeners, until next time, goodbye. Bye from me. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't the movie you yet. You scrying earth bag.